Good evening. Thank you for coming to be with us. Last week we started a new series looking to give an overview of the message of the Bible. And last week in our first installment we managed to cover the main thrust of the book of Genesis and to, to give us something to almost to hang our hat on as we, as we work through this series, uh, we have taken the theme of the kingdom of God and seeing that this is, this is one of the themes that unites the whole message of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And to try and help us, I adopted a reasonably broad but hopefully helpful definition of what the kingdom of God is, which um, Erlen's going to put up for us. It is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And we saw that this pattern was there uh, in God's original design in the Garden of Eden. But that was ruined by human rebellion against God's rule. We then saw that God called Abraham, promised that Abraham would be the father of a great nation and that God would give them a land and that he would bless them and through Abraham's descendants all the nations of the earth would be blessed as well. And that this was a promise that was not only given to Abraham but even after Abraham was dead and buried the promise was repeated to his son, it was repeated to his grandson. But when we came to the end of the book of Genesis... This chosen family that God had called, there was maybe about 70 of them. And they're taking refuge in Egypt. They had moved out of the land that God had promised to them. And it seems to us when we come to the end of Genesis that, well, maybe they they couldn't be further away from seeing this promise fulfilled. And maybe we're tempted to ask the question, well, why did God not just fulfill immediately all of these promises to Abraham? Why not just immediately do it and let Abraham see it with his own eyes? Well, what we're going to find is that God is going to show us, and specifically what we're going to look at today is that God is going to show his people exactly what it takes for him to build his kingdom out of such poor raw materials. So we're going to start where we left off in Exodus chapter 1. Exodus 1. And this is just really to set the context of, of where we're starting. Um, all of, almost all of the readings tonight will come up on the screen. But if you have a Bible, you'll find that helpful to, to be able to just see exactly where these things fit. These, these words will come up on the screen. This is from verse 8 of Exodus 1. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. If the situation was bad at the end of Genesis 50, it's a whole lot worse when we come to this next chapter in Exodus 1. Not only are the children of Israel in a foreign land, they are enslaved. The more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more they multiplied. 
And the Egyptians fear and despise this now enormous population of Hebrews. So much so that the Pharaoh instituted some state-sanctioned slaughter of every male Hebrew child just to keep control of things. But what the story of Exodus tells us is that God's promises and God's purposes are much greater than man's best efforts to control the situation. And the first lesson here is that for God to establish his kingdom, there needs to be redemption and deliverance. The central human figure in this period of Israel's history is Moses The child who, by God's providence, escapes the Egyptian cull of Hebrew boys. And more than just escapes, he's adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And so he grows up in the royal palace. He receives the finest education that the world could offer. And yet we find him as an adult still identifying with his Hebrew roots. So much so that he has reason to fear that he might be in danger in Egypt. And so Moses runs and he goes off into obscurity, into the wilderness for 40 years. And then aged round about 80 years old, God appears to him in the burning bush on Mount Sinai. It has been about 400 years since Abraham, but God has not forgotten If you turn to to chapter 3, verse 6, where God encounters Moses, this is how he introduces himself. Again, this will be up on the screen for you. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's how God introduces himself. It's been hundreds of years since these promises were first given, but yet God is faithful to his promise. He doesn't forget You see the continuity here that God is working out his purpose. God sends Moses down to Egypt to demand that Pharaoh release his claim on the Hebrews and let them go free. Moses is sent and he's to go in the personal name of God, Yahweh. I am who I am or I will be who I will be. Again, something of the the perpetual consistency of God. Moses goes into Egypt. He's obedient. And Pharaoh virtually laughs in Moses' face. And says, in effect, well, if the Israelites' God feels so strongly about this situation, then where has he been all these years? And so God asserts his authority. He asserts it before Pharaoh and before all of Egypt by sending ten plagues. They include things like the River Nile being turned to blood. There are fleas, there are gnats, there are boils, there's hailstones, there's darkness, and a few others besides. But the most defining and the most decisive of these was the last plague. The one that claimed the life of the firstborn son of every family and even of every animal. But this plague didn't touch the children of Israel. But the reason why it didn't touch them is something we need to pause and take a look at. I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12. 
Thank you. So you're going to see where I'm going to, to jump. I'm going to take selected verses just for time's sake. But we start in verse 3. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family and for each household. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord." The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. There's a lesson here for God's people. If God is going to rescue them, then it's going to require innocent blood to be shed. To be shed in their place. If they are going to avoid being just swept away like everyone else in the judgment of God that is coming, then something has to stand between them and God's judgment. And here we see the principles of redemption. For God's people to be rescued, what is described in Exodus 12 is that a pure, spotless, innocent lamb must be slain in their place. It's this innocent blood that provides shelter for these families of Israel. And so when God's judgment sweeps through the streets of Egypt that night, they're safe. Because God looks on the blood and he passes over. Really hugely important principle. Hugely important event in the life of Israel, but a hugely important event for us to have a grasp of what has happened for us to be redeemed. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. You find that in 1 Corinthians 5. This idea that we, spiritually speaking, were in exactly the same position as these Israelites, enslaved. But we needed to be redeemed, to be purchased out of our slavery. And the one who had to die in our place was Jesus Christ. And so if you're a believer here tonight, it is in a very real sense that you, like these ancient Israelites, you're sheltering under the blood. And God, when he looks on you, he sees the blood. And he says, the judgment will never touch you. The judgment will never touch you because... You are sheltering under the blood of Christ. The Apostle Peter would would rejoice that we are redeemed, not by perishable things like gold and silver, but by the precious blood of Christ. It's as if he says, what a purchase this must be, if it has been purchased with the blood of Jesus. Pharaoh lets the Israelites go at this point. And God leads them out. And he seems to lead them into a dead end. In front of them is the Red Sea. And behind them is Pharaoh's army who have changed their mind and are now pursuing. The people panic. 
They doubt whether God could save them from this predicament. Moses boldly tells them, do not be afraid. Stand firm. You will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And indeed, God sends a wind to part the sea and allows his people to travel through on dry land. The Egyptian slave masters, they try to pursue them and the sea falls back in on top of them. The people were free. They had been spared the judgment of God by the blood of the Lamb. And the slavery that they had known all of their lives was now a thing of the past. And, and uh, the, the, the way it's recounted in Exodus, it's quite vivid. That we're told that the, the children of Israel, they looked on the seashore. And there dead on the shore was their old slave masters. As if that couldn't be clearer, they're now free from slavery. And of course that is still a picture that applies for God's redeemed people today. We are cleansed from sin. But we are also rescued from slavery to sin. And when we look to the cross of Christ, when we look to the empty tomb, we see in, a, in, in effect that our old slave masters, they're dead. Their power over us has been broken because of the work of Jesus Christ. They lie dead on the seashore before us. They control us no longer. This is what it means to be free, to be liberated in Christ, to be freed from slavery to sin. So God redeems and he delivers his people. And if you read through the chapters that follow, you find that the Israelites, they have a tragically short memory. Each little hurdle that comes up, they start moaning and grumbling and saying, well, surely the Lord's forgotten us or the Lord's not able to deliver us. But God is patient with them. And their journey brings them to the place where Moses had encountered God at first on Mount Sinai. And now God makes a covenant with his people. And I want to read some verses from Exodus 19, which again will come up on the screen. Because they're very revealing as to God's purposes. This is from verse 5 of Exodus 19. Now if you obey me fully... And keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God promises to treasure his people. He wants them to be priests, to be mediators to the rest of the world of what it looks like, of what it really means to be God's redeemed and delivered people. And therefore, because they're going to take on this role, he wants them to be like him. He wants them to be holy. If they're going to represent God, then they need to represent what God is like. Now it's very important because what, what takes place next is God gives them the law. And it's so important that we just note something that's really obvious here but really easily forgotten. God redeemed and delivered this people before 
He gave them the law. They were redeemed and delivered and called his people before he gave them the law. Don't think that God gave Israel the law as a kind of roadmap for how to get right with God. He saved them first. The law is not the, the, the roadmap to salvation. It's not a case of do this and don't do that and you'll be right with God. God having made this band of Abraham's descendants his, then gives them the law. I mean, look at how the Ten Commandments opens. This is uh, verse 1 of chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I've rescued you. I've brought you to myself already. The law was to guide what God's people should look like. Not a pathway of how to become God's people. And so, this being the case, there's a real sense in which the law reveals to us who God is, reveals to us what God is like. So some parts of the law, they reveal um, what God declares to be right and wrong in the realms of morality or in the realms of sexuality or in broader ethics. Our God is a moral being. He wants his people to reflect his moral standards. And then there's other things in here which are very distinct. They would make God's people very distinctive. For example, they would observe the Sabbath. They had strict dietary rules. There's circumcision. They make make God's people distinct. They stand out. They are definitely set apart as God's people. In the book of Exodus, we're given an introduction to the law. Uh, The Ten Commandments are found in chapter 20. But the bulk of the remainder of this book is taken up with another subject. From chapter 25 to the end of the book, with a little bit of um, history in the middle, we have the instructions for constructing the tabernacle. This is a large tent where Israel's formal worship was to take place. More than just a place for people to come and focus their thoughts, this was the place where God would dwell with his people. It's a very important principle. So, for example, in Exodus 29, they're told how they should uh, consecrate or set apart the tabernacle for God's use. And then, and again, this will come up on the screen from verse 45, God says, Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their gods who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. This is why he's brought them out of Egypt. This is why he's redeemed and delivered them. This is why he's made the covenant with them, that he might dwell with them and be their God. And if you were to skip to the very last chapter of Exodus, this is exactly what happens. Verse 34 of chapter 40 Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is what happens. Here we see God's plan is to redeem his people, that he might dwell with them. But is there something that maybe doesn't add up? I mean, how on earth is this going to work out? How is it going to work out that God 
will be dwelling with this sinful people. How is that going to be possible? That's why the next book of the Bible is there. The book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is in some ways a pause. We pause in the storytelling. And it reveals to us, in a manner of speaking, what what the protocol is if you're going to dwell with God in this way. It's the, the guidelines for God's people, the law that's going to be laid down as to how it will be the case that they can live with God amongst them. For example, Leviticus, uh, the first seven chapters of Leviticus are all about the system of sacrifices and offerings. These provide a means for the Israelite to come and to offer worship to God by bringing their offerings. These also provide an opportunity for the Israelite who has sinned to come and bring a sacrifice so that, and this is repeated again and again in these early chapters, so that he will be forgiven. God is providing his people with the means by which his relationship with them will be maintained. And the rest of this book shows that that being in a covenant relationship with God is not just about having the tabernacle there, not just about God saying, I'll come to the tabernacle and you can come and worship me there, and as long as you behave in a certain way when you're there, it'll be fine. But the rest of the book tells us that being in covenant relationship with God is something that permeates every relationship in life. Family relationships, employer-employee relationships, how you treat the stranger. All of these things are influenced by being in covenant relationship with God. This is how they can dwell together. So what have we seen so far? God redeems his people from slavery. He makes a covenant with them. He takes up residence among them. He shows them how to live under his rule and the way of blessing. The only thing that they seem to lack is a place to call home. And this is where the book of Numbers picks up. Israel is on the journey to the promised land. The first ten chapters of the book of Numbers are a very positive and optimistic read. The people are preparing. They are anticipating that they will soon be in the place that God has promised to take them. Early on in the book, the people are numbered, hence the name of the book, the book of Numbers. Uh, There are some more regulations given. They follow the Lord as he leads them on. But then, chapter 11, the wheels start to come off. Uh, The Israelites start grumbling about their diet. And then there is some criticism of Moses from, of all people, his own brother and sister. But the crowning moment of rebellion comes when they're on the, on the border of the promised land and they send 12 spies in to go and check out the lie of the land. You'll find this in Numbers 13 and 14. And to, to every, from every angle you look at it, it seems as if they're on the brink of going in. But the spies come back. And ten out of the twelve 
They're despondent. They say, yes, the land is beautiful. Yes, the land is fertile. It is just what we need. However, the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. And they tell stories of there being giants in the land. How can we ever overcome them? This faithless report so caught up with what the eye can see and so neglecting the God who has brought them thus far. It serves to sap the spirit out of God's people. With the exception of two faithful spies, Joshua and Caleb. They proclaim to the people, if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land. But the people refused to trust God. They would not enter in. Moses has to intercede. He prays to God that God would be merciful to his people. And I want to read you uh, God's reply, which you find in Numbers 14. Um, Again, this will come up on the screen. Numbers 14, I'm reading from verse 20. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. What a turning point this is in the story. God has led them and been so patient with them and brought them to the very brink of going into the promised land and they would not trust him. And the only exceptions to this pronouncement would be those two faithful spies. Their lack of trust in God consigned them to wander and die in the wilderness over the next 40 years. It would be their children who would receive The fruit of God's promise. And in the book of Numbers, there's not actually a lot of chapters taken up with those 40 years. There's a long list of all of the stopping points that they had along the way. But we very quickly move to God leading his people again into the plains of Moab. On the brink of entering in 40 years later. It seems they're ready to go in and take what their parents failed to grasp. But not quite yet. We come to our fifth book of the Bible, the book of Deuteronomy. It's a hugely important book, and I know a number of people for whom it is their favorite book of the Bible. It literally means the second law. And really what's happening in the book of Deuteronomy is the law, which was first given 40 years previously, is getting a second reading. Not word for word, not exactly the same statutes, but it's getting a second reading. Moses in the book of Deuteronomy is speaking to the people one last time before he signs off. But remember, this is the next generation who, if they had heard the covenant being ratified at Sinai, or if they had heard the law being given 40 years ago, they were just children. Moses, he opens the book 
by giving them a, a salvation history. This is where we've come from. This is what God has done for us. And almost as if he's saying, on the basis of, of your faithlessness as a people, and on the basis of God's continued goodness to us as our God, hear these words. There's a few verses I want to pick out of this book because they help us just to, to always keep our perspective on what God's great plan is. The first of these comes from Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Um, again, these will come up on the screen from verse 6. You are a, a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Um, and also before I comment on that, chapter 10, and if we look at verses um, 12 and 13, again, Erlen's brought those up for us, thank you. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own goods. You see, it's only as God's people maintain this perspective that it is he who has made them his people. Not because of what they are, but because of who he is. It's not because there's merit in them. It's because he loves them. It's because God has a heart of gracious, compassionate love and of faithfulness to the promises that he made to their forefathers. He chooses them out of his good pleasure. And it's on this basis that God's people are to respond in obedience to him. And that's why I read those verses from chapter 10 as well. It's because they, in recognizing that God has done everything, that they respond to God's first love to them. This new generation who will go into this promised land, they have the law given to them. Moses spells it out for them. And he comes to... Uh, also share with them what the blessings will be if they're obedient and what the curses will be if they're disobedient. You'll find all of those in Deuteronomy 28. It's laid out before them as a renewal of God's covenant. And so Moses, he gives this to them and he blesses them and with that he leaves the scene. How will they fare? Well, we draw to a close tonight by briefly considering the book of Joshua, which comes next. It is the book of conquest of the promised land. 
Joshua, that faithful spy, he is the new leader of Israel. He will lead them in military victory. But what is apparent really quite early on in the book of Joshua is that Israel is not going to be victorious as they enter into the promised land because of Joshua's superior military tactics. It is because God goes ahead of them and wins the battle for them. There's a small reenactment of the, of the parting of the Red Sea when God uh, parts, so to speak, parts the River Jordan to let them across Joshua 3. And before they go into battle, they rededicate themselves to God. There's this very conscious thing where they say, yes, we are going to identify ourselves with God as much as we can. So all these children that had been born in the wilderness, they weren't circumcised. So they make it a priority. We're going to do this. The sign of the covenant that God has made, we will, we will take it. We will put it on our children. They remember the Passover, remembering again God's faithfulness, God's action on their behalf. And they go to Jericho. Jericho is a strong city. It's a walled city. But it is not a siege, and it is not a battering ram that wins the day for the people of Israel. It is the Lord who brings the walls down. Simply by instructing them to march round every day for seven days, and then on the seventh day do it seven times, and the walls just fall straight down. God is fighting on their behalf. And the rest of the book of Joshua is about the Israelites' military conquests and about how they divided up the land between the tribes after they had won these victories. Listen to how this is summed up at the end of chapter 21 of Joshua. And this is from verse 43. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their forefathers. And they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their forefathers. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. And so God had fulfilled everything. His establishing of his kingdom seems to be done, right? God's people are now in God's place. They're under his rule and they know his blessing. Well, that's the problem. The book of Joshua ends with a really uncertain note. It's not that there's any uncertainty about God. We have seen even in those verses that God is marked out by nothing but faithfulness. The doubt is in God's people. Joshua himself leaves them with a parting challenge. And with these we will close. Chapter 23. Um, Again, this will come up from verse 12. Uh, We'll read from verse 9 actually the lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations to this day no one has been able to withstand you and then to verse 12 but if you turn away 
and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you. And if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs, thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. There's some uncertainty left. They're there, but how are God's people going to manage? Joshua, in the next chapter, in very famous words, um, he says in verse 15, which um, Erland will put up for us, Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. What we've covered so far is a message of God fulfilling every promise that he makes. What we're going to see in future weeks is how the people are unfaithful to God's covenant. And we're going to see how things unravel again. We're left here realizing that God has done all of these things, but that actually it's not the ultimate solution to healing man's problem. But what we should be encouraged by as we read these verses is that every promise, and and it couldn't have been clearer in, in those verses in Joshua 21, that it was every promise just as he had sworn to their forefathers. How often do you think of the promises of God like that? How often do you think those promises that have been made to you as a believer in Christ are as absolutely cast iron that their fulfillment is not in question because this is the nature of our God's. This is the, one of the grand messages of Scripture. Not one of all the Lord's good promises has failed. What a joy that is for us. When we know that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Your soul is secure if you're in Christ. Your future is certain. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Because not one of God's good promises can fail. What a joy. To have that, to have this God dwell in us, to redeem us, to save us, to make covenant with us, to be with us and in us. Amen.